Um, today we are going to be reading from Matthew 6, um, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of God. Thanks. Good morning. I hope everyone's doing all right. Nice, cool weather this morning. That's nice. <laughs> all right, so this is going to be uh, part two of our sermon series on hearts of generosity, specifically when it comes to money. And uh, I'll be just real honest with you. <laughs> I was not looking forward to teaching on this. Um, like this week, I've, I've been physically sick like of, because of stress. Um, you know, I thought about drawing up some like escape routes, you know, for this morning if things don't go well. Okay, and uh, so if you don't see me after service, as always, send your emails to glingle at nbcchurch.com. So, yeah, every time that this subject is brought up in church, um, there's kind of a tension in the air. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's like we're talking about something that we're not supposed to, right? Is that me? Okay. Um, so hopefully that'll get fixed out there. Um, but I think most of us know why. Like we, we've read stories, we've heard things, we've experienced the way that um, finances or money in church has been abused, right? And honestly, I think that was part of what was making me kind of sick this week. Selfishly, like I didn't want um, to be included into that. I didn't want uh, conclusions to be drawn about me for teaching this. And so I was really more worried about what you thought about me than I was about proclaiming the truth from God. And I had to repent of that and recognize that this isn't about me. And through a lot of prayer this week, God really changed my heart on this topic. Um, and, you know, because I think it is that we, we, while we recognize that there is abuse for it, we don't always really focus on that the opposite is also true, right? That through the years that churches have used money for ministry, for discipleship, for preaching, for teaching the gospel, and ultimately to bring glory to God um, through, throughout the ages, right? And um, clearly not perfectly, and I'm not trying to stand up here and make that case. Um, but, you know, I've been here at this church for 26 years now, and I could probably count on both hands the number of times that we've actually talked about this subject, okay? So if you are visiting with us, this is your first time here, or, you know, you just generally hold a distrust for the church in this particular area, I'm going to do my best this morning to honor what the text says and focus um, on what I think Jesus is addressing uh, to us in the scriptures over and over when it comes to this particular topic, and that is our hearts in this area. So a few weeks ago, um, we're going to be Matthew chapter 6. If you want to turn there, that's kind of where we're going to be camping. Um, a few weeks ago, Lingle uh, had this quote during one of his Malachi series 
uh, sermons, and it, it said this, that the Bible has over 500 uh, verses about prayer. From, genera- uh, from Genesis to Revelation, there's 500 verses about prayer, and that's pretty significant, right? Like if, we were to, if someone were to say something to you 500 times, they're trying to emphasize a point, right? And on, on the same side of things, the, the Bible also has about as many verses on faith, which kind of makes some sense because those two things are pretty intrinsically linked. Okay, now the surprising fact about that quote was that there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible about money. So it's the proverbial elephant in the room, if you will, okay? And I, and I want to give that a little bit more perspective, okay? One-tenth of the New Testament verses deal with money. 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables address it. So 25% of Jesus' teachings are focused on financial matters. So imagine for a second... If one out of every four of our sermons, so one time a month, we talked about money in our sermons, okay, we'd be more closely aligned with Jesus' teachings, and yet because of the culture today, we'd probably receive more questions on whether or not we were even following Jesus' teachings at all. Now, I told you I'm going to be honest with you this morning, okay, so Jesus did teach extensively about money, but he never collected an offering. He never said, you know, we really need to build that new wing of the synagogue, okay, He never said, hey, you know, I could really reach a lot more people if I just had a really sweet chariot, okay? He never said those things. Okay, now I'm not saying those things are inherently wrong, okay, because they're not. Okay, I am saying, though, that Jesus taught about money without ever asking for it. And the question is then, why? Because within the Sermon on the Mount, which is our text for the day, okay, Jesus is targeting our hearts before our actions. Okay, it's not because he doesn't want transformed actions, but the route to get there starts within the heart. Okay, money has a unique way of either corrupting us or liberating us, depending on how it intertwines with our heart. Okay, so Matthew 6, we're going to start there. I'm going to read it again. This is starting at verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? For no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the first thing that we might notice is the do not, right? This is kind of classic Jesus teaching here. Don't do this but do this, okay? Now, I want to emphasize, because it's really easy for us to focus on the do not, that Jesus is actually encouraging us to accumulate treasure, okay? Do you see that there? He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures, okay? God wants you to have treasures, but in a specific way, okay? And I I want us to understand that the do not portion of that is for our benefit, okay? It's a safeguard for your soul against anxiety, against stress, and really the urge in all of us to want to be God, Okay? When Jesus is talking about moths and rust and thieves, he's trying to help us see that we have less control of our things than we think we do. Okay? Because here's our situation. We live in between Ecclesiastes and Job. All right? um, let me clarify what I mean by that. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a book written by King Solomon. Okay? He was thought by many to be one of the most wealthy um, men to ever live on this earth. Okay? So think kind of ancient times, Elon Musk. Right? Okay? And um, he, he kind of writes this book and he basically is conducting this sort of experiment, if you will, of, of he just tests the pleasures of this life. 
Like he has the funds and the, the unlimited funds to be able to do this. And so he goes through and he, he uh, has these lavish parties and he, these feasts and all this wine. And, and he builds, you know, buildings and, and these beautiful gardens and he tries women. Okay, and don't be mad at me, that's in the Bible, okay? Um, and after amassing all this wealth and tasting all that this world has to offer, he says this, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless, okay? And Jared actually taught about this just a few weeks ago. So you can go back and listen all about that, okay? Now, Job, on the other hand, right? Like he was on the other end of the spectrum, right? Where he lost everything. He lost his livestock. He lost his servants, which is essentially like his wealth, right? He lost his children. He lost his health. So everything is, is kind of gone, all right? And through all of that loss, Job comes to this conclusion that God alone is sufficient. Okay, so we have these two ends of the spectrums. You following with this, okay? One side, you, you kind of have everything and you realize that it's all meaningless, it's all in vain. And the other side, you lose everything and you realize God alone is sufficient. That's all you need. Okay, now again, here's our issue. We, you and I, are in between this. Okay, we're in between these two views. We'll, we will most likely never have the wealth on the, on the level of Solomon, right? And, and we'll probably never experience loss on the scale that Job experienced it, right? So what happens to us? We end up in this position where we're like, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more and I'll be happy. Just a little bit more and I'll finally be content. It's really hard for us to see things the way that Solomon or the Job saw them. Okay, so the Bible is warning us not to put our trust in those things. Don't put your trust in things that can be destroyed by moth, by rust, or stolen by thieves. And I think that deep down, most of us realize the truth of that, right? but we don't always see it. So I wanna look at that for a moment, okay? There's no amount of money in the world that can guarantee that you will be healthy forever, correct? There's no amount of money in the world that will guarantee that you will never have conflict in your relationship again, is there? Right, like happiness and peace and you know, escape out of depression, those are not things that can be bought, can they? So everyone kind of following with me here, right? Maybe, maybe a simpler way to say it is this. Material things, have a way of increasing our worry. Okay, and let me give you an example. All right, I have a, a picture of this. Back in high school, this is the car that I drove. Yeah, yes, let me tell you. That is a 1983 Pontiac Parisian Broham. And I don't know why, maybe back in the 80s they gave cars three names, okay? But now you wouldn't maybe guess by looking at this beauty, but never in my life did I worry about this car. Okay, I, I worried, could I get from point A to point B? That was it. Okay, there was never a parking spot that was too small, right? There was never a road that was too bumpy for me to go on. Okay, this was a tank. Like, in fact, now I'm standing here thinking about this. My daughter will be learning to drive in about a year. Maybe I should start looking for this classic for her. Um, Anyways, okay, I, I even got to one wreck in college in this car, and it was, I don't know, it was kind of humorous afterwards, nobody, everybody was okay, but this car was kind of flying down the turn lane and clipped me, and, and uh, the whole side of this car was just, just demolished, and the broham had a little piece of plastic that chipped off, and I mean, not a joke, that's serious, so it is, it was a tank, okay? Now, how many of you have seen this in the next picture? You see it? Okay. Material things have a way of increasing our worry that weren't even there before, right? Now, now, hold on. We're not trying to judge anything here. That's not the point of this, okay? I'm not saying that you shouldn't take care of your things. You should, okay? They're, they're a gift from God, and they're a blessing, and we should steward them well. Okay, I'm just trying to acknowledge 
that we can become overly attached to those things. And spiritually, that's not going to do you any favors, right? Okay, so Jesus says, don't invest in things that are going to keep your heart tethered to earthly possessions. But Jesus, the great teacher that he is, he says this, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? In other words, invest in heaven. So how do we do that? Well, I thought it would be helpful to look back at how God's people have done that throughout the scriptures, okay? One of the earliest mentions of the tithe is back in Genesis 14. And we see Abraham tithing 10% of everything he has to this uh, guy named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's a really fascinating figure in the Bible, and I wish we had time to look at that. But I want you to know just this, that he was both king, it says the Bible says he was king of Salem, and that he was a uh, high priest, or he was uh, priest of God Most High. Okay, so he was both king and high priest, which was really unique during that time. Okay, so he's this kind of figure that's symbolically uh, kind of foreshadowing Jesus, right? And then we step forward a little bit in the scriptures and we see God as he begins to kind of form his covenant with his people in Exodus and Numbers. And we see kind of this written code of the tithe where it's simply this, you're giving 10% of what you received and that 10% was designated to the Levite priests who then served in the temple and the tabernacle, okay? Then the tithe goes on okay, to be kind of the standard for God's people throughout the ages for a long time, right? It was a way that, that uh, setting God's people apart uh, from other people. It was the way that he was kind of teaching them and beginning to, to teach them how to, how to invest in heaven and really this goal of kind of moving their hearts towards where we see it land in the New Testament. So here's the truth. Scholars, teachers, pastors, different denominations, all have different perspectives on the tithe. So rather than trying to steer you in a particular direction this morning, I just want to tell you what my family does. Okay, this is our personal regards, or our personal kind of practice um, when it comes to the tithe. The minimum that we will give is 10%. Um, it's what our family's committed to, and we will direct that 10% to the church that is spiritually shaping us. Okay, for us, that means Mansfield Bible Church, right? My role here is not just a staff member. I'm a church member, right? My wife is a church member. She serves um, on the welcome team. She helps me lead a small group. My kids are here at this church. Many of you in this room have taught them through the children's ministry and now in the youth ministry. Okay, we are fully immersed members of this church community. Okay, this is our home, right? Um, and, and I want to share with you a verse that kind of helped us come to this decision. Okay, this is Matthew 23, 23. It says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So here Jesus is on the case of the Pharisees, okay, the religious people of the day. And I'll just tell you, like most of the time we should probably insert ourselves into uh, the Pharisee uh, position when we read the scriptures. Um, he's saying that you're worried about these kind of minute rituals, this, this you know, he, they're dividing up mint and, and, um, and cumin, like these spices, right? They're so concerned about that that they've missed the bigger picture, okay? In other words, you're missing the heart of this, right? He says, but notice this also, he says both are important. He says, do one without neglecting the other, okay? Jesus isn't saying to them tithing is wrong or unnecessary. He says, you've missed the plot, Okay, and rather that both of these things are important. Okay, and that's, that's what I see when I read this verse. Okay, so our decision, whether he blesses us abundantly as a family or modestly, is that that's the percentage we're always gonna give. That's our minimum. Okay, and, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, wow, that just sounds like a big pat on the back. No, 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 no. 
The main reason why we're committed to that is because we know our hearts, right? Like we know how easy it is to get to a point where we say to ourselves, you know what, I think that we give enough. Um, you know, when I, when I first came on staff, I wrestled with this a lot. Like, it, you know, you're, you're kind of giving and that goes to your salary and that's kind of weird. And so we, we tried different things. We thought maybe we just set aside some money and we look for needs and then we give to that. But there, there was no consistency to that, right? Like we, it was really tempting to have just that money sitting there, right? And so we know that our hearts are that way. And so this is done um, to safeguard our hearts from that. Okay? It's helps us to main, maintain a posture of, Lord, this is what we're going to give moving forward regardless of our situation. Okay? So tithing was directed to the tabernacle, to the synagogue, to the temple, you know, depending on the era that we're in here. Okay? But we do see this kind of focus shift, and, and maybe that's not the right term for it. Maybe it's more like, um, more of like an illumination of, of the original point. Okay, about generosity when it comes to God's people in the New Testament. Okay, it happens um, as the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. Okay, we no longer see the mentions of tithing, right? And instead, we start to see this kind of core principle for all believers, which I think is this generosity motivated by love and discerning and being in discernment of need. Okay, so uh, generosity motivated, motivated by love and a discernment of need. Okay, so we start to see this in Acts 2. Let me turn to that real quick. Uh, it says this, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay, now there's, there's kind of a lot going on here. Um, the context of this, many people at this time were kind of understanding that Christ was, was going to return during their lifetime, like soon, right? And so they were living in such a way where they understood that their things right, didn't really mean much in light of the imminent return of Christ, Right? And so they're making sure that everybody knew about that rather than worried about accumulating goods. So their mindset had drastically shifted. Um, and so, uh, and that's, you can see that, like, uh, you know, sharing the gospel became a lot more important than the stuff that they had, right? And, and when you live in that way, thinking that Christ could return at any moment, which should also apply to us today, like, you can see where you, know, you kind of have a posture of an open hand for your stuff, right? Um, and so, but I, I think we can all see that this is kind of, and especially for the day, this was pretty drastic behavior, right? This was radical uh, generosity that was not seen in, in a very normal scale during the time. But this mentality is consistent moving forward through the New Testament. So I want to look at another verse. This is 2 Corinthians 9. It says this, starting at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I love this verse, and I love that our elders have put this verse in place when it comes to how we give at NBC, okay? It's on all of our offering boxes back there in the back, okay? This is one of the reasons why we don't pass plates, okay? It shows you, this verse shows you how serious God is about your heart, right? He says, I don't want you to give reluctantly. I don't want you to give under compulsion, right? He doesn't want you to go, well, you know, like, Bible says I got to give, so I guess I got to give. Okay, that's not the point here. He says he loves a cheerful giver. And the Greek word for cheerful there is hilaros, which is where we get the word hilarious from, right? So not just a cheerful giver, not just a happy giver, but a hilarious giver, like, right? Think about that. You're crazy giver, right? <laughs> crazy generous, all right? And that's the picture of God's kingdom, though. That's what God's people are supposed to look like. So let's look at one more verse in the New Testament. This is 1 Timothy um, 6, um, starting at 
verse 17. It says, as for the rich in this present age. <laughs> Let's pause there for a second. You guys, look here. Um, this is everyone in this room, right? Now, I understand that some of us may be in a position where we find ourselves paralyzed financially. Okay, we're living paycheck to paycheck. Okay, maybe to a point where like our baloney doesn't even have a first name. Okay, you with me? Some of you, yes? Okay, like I get it, I've been there, all right? But if we live in this area of Mansfield, Texas, then by the world's standards, we're rich, okay? So um, don't turn off when we, we read, hey, the rich among you, and be like, no, that's not me. Okay, that's us, it's all of us, all right? So let's continue. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for their future, so that they may, and I love this last part, take hold of that which is truly life. So this, there's a story that's being presented to all of us constantly about what the good life is. Right? It happens every time you open up social media. It happens every time you turn on the TV. It's in every single ad. And it's basically this, self-indulgence, right? Um, and comfort, right? And, and Paul is saying right here in this scripture that if you would just be generous with what you have, okay, you'll actually take hold of that which is truly life. Because there's the difference in the way that you live if you have a mindset of scarcity versus a mindset of abundance. Okay, and not that we need anything to back up the scriptures, but we have sociological data on this, okay, guys, that shows us that generous people tend to be happier people. So, again, like God is, is um, if shifting our mindset that we would uh, know that God has provided enough, right? Like just that, that God has provided enough. Okay, it will lead you into a life of more contentment and more joy, right? We're still doing okay? Still good? All right, all right. Now, we've read all the verses, okay, and we've established that Jesus is concerned about our hearts. How then do finances teach us about ourselves? So let's do this. By a show of hands, how many of you in here think you can justify just about anything in your life? Anybody? Show of hands. You can justify it. No, Nobody. Perfect. You guys just justified why you don't have to raise your hand, okay? The heart is deceitful, guys. Like, we, we will all justify everything. Here's a secret. You are the best liar to yourself than anyone else. You lie more often to yourself and more perfectly to yourself than anyone else in your life. Because here's, here's what Jesus is doing in these verses in, in a very real way. He's saying, look, I, I know what you say you value. Like, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I know what you want to present as, as what, you, what you believe, but can I see your bank statement? Why does Jesus so often speak about finances? I think it's because it reveals the deepest realities about ourselves and where our true affections really lie. So let's look at Matthew 6 here. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your money will gravitate towards whatever has your worship. It's just the way it works. So a really good way for us to examine our heart and our true desire is to look at how we spend our money. It allows, and allow that 
to kind of narrate the truth of what's real. Okay, now listen, I'm not trying to guilt anyone here this morning, okay? I think what Jesus is demanding of his followers is this, financial margin, okay? In other words, do you have the ability to bless? If you're looking at your finances and you're living in a home that's beyond your means, you're driving a car that you really can't afford or spending money that you really don't have, we love you, okay? But that says something about you, okay? It just does. Right? And if you want to push back a little bit and say, well, actually, I can't afford it. Okay? I'm trying to tell you that biblically speaking, if that house, of living in that house has created a scenario that you cannot be generous, then you can't afford it. Because you and I are called to generosity. Right? And if you want to keep pushing back on that, I understand. Okay? Maybe you got that car on like a 12-year lease for 900 a month and you can't afford that payment. Okay? I'm saying that if... <laughs> if if, you, if that creates a scenario in your life that you cannot continue to be generous, then you can't afford it. It's as simple as that, right? Like I have a kid that's in competitive soccer and my goodness, the fees and the cost of that is outrageous. I know some of you in here have been through that and I would happily drop that bill today if so, but my wife and I said, hey buddy, like if, if you're gonna be committed to this, then we will too. However, if we could not afford that, and, and still continue to be generous, then we couldn't afford to pay for that. And I'm not trying to say don't, don't spend money on your kids, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But if that prevented us from being generous, then we can't afford it. And if you're still not convinced, um, you know, think about little things, like your cup of coffee that you get each day, right? And like, hold on, I love coffee too. Okay, I'm up here fighting for you. Lingle tells me all the time that people that drink coffee are in a cult. Okay, I am fighting for you. I love a good cup of coffee, okay? However, and you might be surprised when you look at it. If you're dropping hundreds of dollars a month on coffee and you can't afford to be generous, then you can't afford that cup of coffee. Okay, it just, it says something about you. It's being revealed to you what you actually value. Okay, and I wanna be very clear here. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a nice house or having a nice car, or enjoying a nice cup of coffee, okay? You can have those things still and live in the margins so that you can still be generous and gracious to those who are in need, right? Okay, so Jesus is trying to help us see these truths. Let's move on in, in, uh, in Matthew 6. Look at verse 22 and 23. Um, it says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So Jesus is just using this metaphor here about the eye. In the ancient world, this was kind of seen as the window to the soul, okay? So he's saying that like a lamp allows light into a room, the eye allows light into the body, okay? So the words healthy and bad, okay, they kind of have a deeper connotations than just physical sickness um, or, or health, right? Like he's saying a healthy eye has a healthy focus, a Christ-centered focus, one that understands what it means to be generous. Okay, while a bad eye, is the opposite, right? It's a stingy heart. Like it's, 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 it has a divided loyalty, right? And so the last part of this, it says, if the light in you is darkness, okay? This is, this is kind of describing the dangers of someone who thinks that they're in the light when they're actually in the darkness, okay? This is about self-deception, okay? And so the passage is really trying to emphasize a point that about self-examination, right? Like what are we focused on? And, and guys, have we... Have we considered the generosity of God? Like, I think it's easy. Like, we look at salvation. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. But let's look at creation for a moment. Okay? Um, so I used to live, uh, when I grew up in Portland, Oregon, I've got a picture of this. This is Portland. On the way in, like, it's beautiful, right? Like, you drive in and you see this. Could God have not just made that 
and then be like, bam, done. Behold my glory. He could have, right? But he didn't. And maybe, maybe mountains aren't your thing. Maybe it's oceans or maybe it's forests or canyons or, or something else, right? But something that's vast that just makes you feel kind of small, right? And then on the scope of the universe, like we're just this speck, right? We're just this little blue planet flying through space with these ever-expanding galaxies, right? Now, God could have just done this and been done, but he didn't. Like he made all those things. He saw fit to bring all those things into being. What about beauty? We could do without that. God didn't have to make things beautiful. You guys think about taste? Like what purpose does taste serve? Like you don't need taste to survive, right? Yet God gave foods all kinds of flavors and taste to enjoy. Like the only reason is so that we would enjoy them. So God's saying not just to be sustained by these things, but to marvel at them, to be in awe of them. That's how generous our God is. And you know what's more amazing than even all that? He gives all of those things to people who hate him. That's how generous our God is, right? And let's look at it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is the generosity of our God. The exchange is this, that he takes every bit of your sin and your rebellion and in its place, through Christ, through Christ's righteousness, he gives you holiness and spotless before his presence, okay? And maybe uh, this one's key for us, really. Like, if, if we could see the... The generosity of our God, I think we'd be able to walk in the light and become more generous people. But if you think God is trying to keep things from you, like he's trying to rob you of some kind of joy, like we're gonna live with that, what describes as darkness, with this kind of scarcity mindset. And Jesus says, how great is that darkness? So our last point is this in, in um, verse 24. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So this is kind of one of those situations where it's helpful to look at the original language, okay? The word, the Greek word for money here is the word mammon, okay? And there's several words in Greek for money, and, and each one has kind of a, a specific meaning, right? And so it's significant um, cho- word choice here so that we know exactly what Jesus is trying to say to us, right? Like when Jesus is contrasting serving God with serving mammon, Okay, he's drawing this distinction between the pursuit of spiritual values right, and the pursuit of material or worldly riches. Okay, and the implication is that these two things are incompatible. Right? They don't work together. Okay, devotion to one will detract from devotion to the other. Okay, so um, mammon isn't really just about money or wealth. Okay, it's more about an attitude or a focus or an obsession with material goods and personal comfort, right? Like it's, it's what becomes an idol for us. Okay, it represents a worldview that material goods and these personal comforts are, uh, comforts are of like our highest goal. Okay, and it, it's, that's in contrast to a life that's oriented towards your relationship with God. Okay, so there's the spiritual reality that Jesus is teaching us here when it comes to money and how money and the human soul interact with each other. Right? He's warning you that you are being shaped in ways you probably aren't even aware of. Right? And, and that, I think this is something we really need to understand. Like You are always, you're always being discipled. Always. Okay, we don't think of it that way. Okay, we don't maybe realize it's even happening, but like everything you experience is always shaping you and forming you. Okay, here's how to live. Here's how to be happy. Here's how to feel accepted. Okay, the influences of the people that you spend the most time with, the people that you listen to. Okay, and it's not just some lazy river. 
right? It's not a lazy river, right? It's a roaring river, and it's thrashing you about to and fro, back and forth, trying to shape you. Okay, and within that backdrop, Jesus is saying to us, watch how you spend your money. Okay, because it's going to expose what you truly value. So watch how you spend your money. Otherwise, you'll end up abandoning me and serving mammon. Okay, and Jesus clearly says here, you will not serve me and money. So what's next? What do we do? Um, the reality is, is that that is going to be different for each one of us in this room. Okay, unfortunately, there's not a silver bullet solution of if you just do this, it'll fix everything and change your heart. Okay, but I will suggest to you that it should start, like most things, with prayer and humility. Okay, some of us may have been blessed at an early age to kind of, someone set us down and taught us how to do a budget or how to, how to think about our money, how to spend our money, how to save our money, how to give our money. Okay, and if that was you, like praise God for that, right? But most of us go into life, we graduate, and we kind of head off into life and we sort of stumble into all of these financial things and we get into like this struggle and trying just to figure it all out, Okay. And so I think maybe something that's just very practical for us to do is if, let's say, you're married, if you just want to sit down with your spouse this week and look at your finances and just let that tell the story of what's true or not, okay? And and the one thing I would request is that no one play the Holy Spirit in that, okay? That's not going to be helpful, right? Don't leave today and be like, so what'd you think about that, okay? Like, that's not helpful. It's just going to get somebody angry, and that's not the point, okay? So um, maybe sit down and talk about it if you're single, Okay, sit down with a friend or a family member you trust. And I, I, look, I get it. That would probably be, and probably will be really awkward. But allow like an objective look at how you spend your money to narrate what's true about your life. Okay, uh, maybe, look, maybe you're in, currently in a really difficult spot right now. You know, and the chances are that it probably took years to get there. It's not going to be, get fixed today, right? It's going to take some years and some time. Um, and, you know, if you need some help, like contact us. Okay, we're, we're here to help. There's no shame in that. Like, we're, we're the body of Christ. We're working together to edify one another, and we're joined together in this, okay? And I know that's hard. I know it's hard. But we have some resources. We have people that are really smart about finances here in our church, and they're pretty much all on our finance team, <laughs> thankfully, praise God. And, and I know we can get some, uh, some help if you need it, and we'll ask for it, okay? So this isn't an easy message, I understand, okay? They're, they're not easy things for us to do. And if you're kind of feeling the tension this morning, okay, know that you're not alone, all right? Uh, Jesus' goal, though, is not to make us happy. It's to make us holy, right? Okay, so if we want to take an objective look at our heart so that we can guard against falling into this trap, right, of, of serving money as our master, one of the ways we can assess that is by looking at our finances, all right, and so we need to just shift our mindset, our, our mindset, okay? We need to change that. We need to understand that there's nothing that we have that God has not given to us, right? That everything belongs to him, the one who purchased us with his blood on the cross. And that as a church, as his bride, through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay, that we should join in this heavenly rhythm, okay, of generosity, okay, following the example of the one who's been so generous to us. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, you're amazing, and we love you, and we thank you for, for teaching us um, hard things sometimes. Um, God, uh, you, you are after our holiness, um, and, and Lord, we just want to praise you for that. We want to submit our hearts in humility um, to your teaching, um, even, even in the hard moments. Um, we know that you um, care about us, 
um, that you love us, that you um, are for us and not against us. And so, Lord, I just pray that your word would land on our hearts uh, softly today, um, that we would be able to, um, to think about, to pray about, and to assess um, what's true for each one of us so that we can do what we try to do here at NBC. Um, that we would be people learning to follow Jesus. Um, it's in your name we pray. Amen.